0: All right. Well, welcome. Go ahead and get going. Hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving and the pumpkin pie is worn off. So we'll stay awake tonight, hopefully. The turkey and tryptophan and all that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's open in prayer and then we'll uh, we'll begin. Father, we thank you for another opportunity that we have tonight to study your Word, and we ask for wisdom and discernment. Pray that you'd help us to learn and apply these principles and gain wisdom as we glean from your word we thank you that it is sufficient and authoritative for us and i thank you that uh, it shows us the right path to follow uh, so that we can successfully navigate life in a fallen world so we pray for your grace and for your mercy even tonight as we study these texts we pray in jesus name amen all right Uh, i know the notes have kind of uh begun to them a little bit but hopefully you're able to follow where we are and uh, as I in my notes uh, we left off as far as I can tell on page 97 so this was uh, two weeks ago I was gone for a conference in Texas uh, two weeks ago and then last week of course was Thanksgiving break uh, but we are in Proverbs 5 Uh, So we're going to be looking at uh, speech number 8, and this is page 97. I do have another installment of the notes, and I don't know if we'll get all the way to that tonight, but that takes us through uh, chapter 10, I believe it is, uh, of Proverbs. Okay. All right, so we're in chapter 5, chapter 5 of Proverbs, and we're working our way through the prologue, and we've been... Uh, seeing these different speeches that the father gives to the son, there are ten in all, and we are now on speech eight. If you remember the structure of the prologue, speeches eight, nine, and ten are warnings against the outside woman that would be attractive to the young man. He's to avoid these temptations, and so we have speech eight here in chapter five, and then the opening part of six, chapter six, uh, one through nineteen is actually an interlude in the speech structure. Uh, So we'll talk a little bit about that, and it's a warning against other outside people that might be enticing to the young man. And then uh, the father resumes in 620, his warnings against the outside woman. And then in chapter 7, we have an example story where he looks upon uh, this young man who's caught and enticed by uh, this wayward woman who draws him in. right, so here in chapter 5, I'll read through the the verses. It's uh, verses 1 to 23, and then we can have some discussion about this text and work through the notes. So beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, it reads, My son, pay attention to my wisdom, turn your ear to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion, and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near to the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel." Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares... Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die led astray by their own great folly. All right. so speech eight here, uh, he's beginning this speech by a warning to pay attention to his wisdom, and then he begins to describe and detail the character of this outside woman, and he provides, in beginning of verse 15, uh, the antidote to that, which is to enjoy the wife of his youth, that is, the woman who is intended to satisfy his desires, uh so as we read through this I'd like to just pause for a moment and open up the floor a little bit to any observations that you have about the text how the the women here are described first the adulterous woman in the first section and then the wife in the latter section uh anything stand out to you as you peruse down this passage about these two women that the young man is admonished about. Any thoughts, observations?
1: There's a big contrast between the adulterous woman. Mm -hmm. Um, She's bitter. Um, Her feet go to death. Her steps lead to the grave. I mean, those are not good places. Mm -hmm. Whereas the wife is a fountain that's blessed and a, a graceful deer um, you rejoice in her. So there's really a sharp contrast between
0: the two. Okay, right. So it's a very sharp contrast. The metaphors, on the one hand, are all regarding death and bitterness, and on the other hand, uh, those things that pertain to life and rep- uh, refreshment and replenishment. Uh, thinking particularly in the context of ancient Israel, uh, if you've ever been to Israel, it's a very dry climate, And water is necessary for the sustenance of any sort of life. So if there's a water source, there's going to be a population around that water source. So water in the ancient world was really a symbol for life itself. Without water, you would perish. Uh, So water is important in that sense. Any other observations about this text, Chapter 5? I think instability and stability. Okay. it's very key, and I think that a lot of people just don't realize the blessing of stability with your own wife. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point, that uh, one of Satan's most effective lies is to paint the, the desirability of that illusory pleasure, which in the end is husks and hollow, but uh, you don't realize what you're giving up until you've done it. So... Uh that's a good point. Stability versus instability. Uh, hop, verse twenty one. Everything
1: mm-hmm. is done in full view of the Lord.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's the anchor really for the the exhortation here that the Lord knows it's in full view of the Lord. Any other thoughts, <clears throat> sir?
1: The second woman has a plan. You know, and it's to build a stable marriage, still build a family and shall we say get on with life. Mm-hmm. The first woman I would call the party girl. Yeah. Eat drink and be married for tomorrow we may shall be me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eat you drink and die, be die. married for tomorrow <laughs> we may die.
0: Right, right. Yeah, there's there's this uh allure of momentary pleasure, but in the second context it's It's life, it's longevity, uh, sustainability. So definitely a contrast in that sense too. Good thoughts. Any other observations? You notice he doesn't present the adulterous woman as undesirable. She is desirable. Verse three, but it's the aftermath that destroys. Uh, So Although the illusion is uh, such that would be desirable, in the end it brings death. Uh, This is reminiscent of how Paul talks about Satan being able to transform himself as an angel of light, that is to present himself as desirable. And this is what uh, temptation is, really in any form. Uh, Temptation is a form of idolatry, seeking to displace the supremacy of the Lord with other things that we find or think are more desirable and so the temptation uh draws him in but in the end it's there's nothing there it's 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 a banquet in the grave as one writer has pictured sin all right good thoughts any other observations about the text all right well let's Let's mention a few things here on page 97. I just want to make a few comments about uh, some of the text here. So the first section here, verse 6, I want to just talk a little bit about this verse. It's a difficult one to translate. The NIV says, she gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly. Okay, so what is this conveying? Uh, Verse 5 had said, her feet go down to death or to the grave. And here in verse 6, she gives no thought to the way of life. Uh, This is a difficult verse to translate, and I have an alternative translation that I've suggested, and it's in the second line there. It's this, lest she penetrate the path toward life, her tracks swerve, yet she does not realize it. That's another way we might translate that. In other words, uh, what I would suggest is this word that the NIV has as gives no thought can also mean... Something that breaks through or uh, pierces something else or penetrates something else. So I think the point of this verse is uh, she wants to avoid that which would lead to life. So she continues to back away from it. It's sort of this idea that uh, those who are apart from Christ have a, stra- uh, a strange repulsion at the same time as attraction to the gospel. Uh, I don't know if you've encountered that in in lost people, but there's often some sort of draw toward the gospel, at the same time not wanting uh, the gospel to expose areas of sin in the life. And so that seems to be the character trait of the wayward woman. She wants to avoid uh, anything which would lead her to the path of life. She's more comfortable in the ways which lead to death. All right, and then page 98 on verse 14 This is also a difficult uh, verse to translate. The NIV says, I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. The question is, what sort of an assembly is this? And what does it mean that he came to the brink of utter ruin? Uh, If you were just reading this verse, what would you picture this as? What does it mean I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly? What do you think that would be talking about? <clears throat> Any thoughts or ideas? He's been sinning. And, you know, I'll use the term incorrectly, serious sinning. Okay, right. So he's, the, the picture here would be he's in jeopardy of losing something or coming under uh, some sort of legal penalty or he's he was at the brink of or nearly to the point of uh, getting into serious trouble. Uh, This is a verse in which uh, the newer NIV is somewhat different from the older NIV. I I read the older NIV, it says, I have come to the brink of utter ruin. Uh, That's probably, in my mind, a better translation. The idea is he was almost to the point where he suffered some sort of sanction against himself. and this is, I think, an imagined legal trial where he would be tried for some sort of uh, legal sanction due to his illicit activity. So, in other words, he's saying, uh, if, if you pursue this wayward woman, you're going to come to the point where you face consequences for that that are undesirable and are uh, such that sanction so it's really a picture, I think, of a destroyed life in the aftermath of this illicit affair. And so uh, this is wouldn't what the that, young man is warned against.
1: Well, wouldn't that lead to stoning at that time? And to me, that to a point of no return.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It that raises a good point. So this is a question that I often wrestle with or ask myself and others. Uh, you know, it's, it's clear that the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament was stoning. The question is, how frequently was that actually enacted? Think of an example, David and Bathsheba. Although the child dies, there's never talk of stoning David. He was the king. He was the king. But there's no recorded instance, to my mind, in all of the Old Testament, where that actually happened. So the question is, this is the ideal in the sense that it's it's a... Very harsh penalty, the ultimate penalty, so as to, uh, you know, to to prohibit the crime. So you know, if the penalty is a deterrent, right, against the crime, but was it actually done? I don't know. That's the question. But it, it this could be the terminology that's that's being used here. Uh, the idea is he's almost to the point of complete destruction, whatever that meant in that context. Uh, with a, the with a section, we're starting in verse 7 with the
1: context. Is it also just referring to even um, his
0: his reputation in public? Yeah, I think so. It's, it's not clear what this assembly is. Some would say this is a legal assembly, so he's uh, in front of a jury of some sort. Uh, others would suggest this is the assembly of sages, but it's not clear... Uh, that there frequently was a meeting of the sages it seems you get glimpses of this in ecclesiastes and some other places that that may have been the case but uh he's probably in jeopardy of losing his standing in the assembly of renowned people Uh, whether or not this is legal it's it's not clear from the context it's difficult to determine so it's a good point all right other thoughts about that okay so in other words the consequences are severe Uh, If he pursues this, uh, it will destroy him in various ways. All right, now I want to spend a little time talking about this, uh, verses 15 and following. Uh, He uses a, a series of metaphors here to describe the wife. And as I'll note in a moment, this is the only place in the prologue where he presents the wife as the antidote to the desirability of the wayward woman. In other words... He, he continues to warn and warn and warn against the outside woman, but here he presents a positive uh, pursuit vis-a-vis this wayward woman. In other words, this is the antidote to his desires to be satisfied with his wife. And so he uses particularly the metaphor of water. Okay, I had mentioned water before as the source of life, Um <clears throat> water in that sense is is desirable as the sustenance of life. But if you think about water, uh, water both has power, but it can also be dangerous in the sense that uh, if water overruns its boundaries, it's potentially dangerous and life-threatening, right? If you've ever been in an area where there's a flood, uh, you know that when water is unleashed, its power is amazing. Uh, If you've seen videos, for instance, of the tsunami that that came several years back as that water came on or floods that have happened. So the idea here, I think this is sort of a double-edged metaphor, that it's both sustaining life as long as it's kept within its proper boundaries. And this seems to be the point, that the water is life-sustaining as long as it's kept within its divinely intended design, All right, so the first metaphor here in verse 15, it's running water from your own well. And uh, I have some explanation of this on page 99. There's a parallel to this in Song of Songs 4.15, where the young woman named Shulamith is compared to a gushing brook there. Uh, The text says, you are a garden fountain, a well of living water, flowing streams, the same word from Lebanon. And so uh, these texts, Seem to uphold the connection, as I note here, the waters described metaphorically in these contexts have special reference to the sexual potency and vitality of the wife who is pictured as a life-giving artesian well and as the headstreams of a stream or river. She is to be the sole source of physical delight, satisfaction, and vivacity for the young, for the wise man. She is to provide sustenance and refreshment. Okay, so he's to draw from her. She is to be the one that sustains and nourishes his life. All right. Then there's also an interesting play on words. I want to just mention this. If you look at verse 19, uh, again, the NIV says, may you be ever intoxicated with her love. Uh, The older NIV said, captivated by her love. Notice this word is repeated in verse 19. And then in the next verse, why be captivated my son by an adulteress? Now what most English versions don't make clear is that this same word is repeated again in verse 23, where it says he will die for lack of discipline. And then that same word uh, is there captivated or led astray by his great folly. Okay, so the writer here is playing on this word to suggest the right sort of feelings toward the wife as opposed to the wrong sort of feelings which will lead astray. So I need to just talk a little bit about this word. It's the word, uh, Hebrew word shagah, which means to go uh, astray or wander off. Sometimes it means to stagger. So what it seems that the father is saying here is you're to be enraptured by the wife rather than being enraptured by the outside woman, because if you're enraptured by her, you will be enraptured or led astray to your folly, ultimately to your death. So it's a play on words here, uh, suggesting uh, where he's to invest his emotional energy. So when it says to be intoxicated with her love, I would translate it uh, this way. Let her breasts satiate you at all times. Keep losing your mind over, over her love. So in other words, the idea is uh, he, he goes crazy. He can't think straight. He's to have rapturous feelings toward his wife. And if uh, you remember what it's like to be young and in love, right? This is uh, often the case that uh, it's hard to think of anything else because your emotions are so wrapped up in this person that you're in love with. And so this is what the father is saying. You're to be in, the son is to be in love with his wife because if he funnels his emotional energies in that direction, he won't be enticed to funnel his emotional energies in an errant direction, which will lead him off the path toward death. So it's not suggesting that, uh, the the, the beauty I think of, of true Christianity, true religion is the fact that it's not just don't, Right. It's do. So in other words, this is what Paul always says in the New Testament. We don't just put off. We put on. We don't just stop it. We start doing this. This is what Ephesians four is all about. Right. Uh, Don't steal, but work so you can give to those who are in need. Right. Don't lie, but speak truth. So there's always a positive so that we're investing ourselves in the positive positive. Rather than always saying no, 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 there is a place for stop it kind of an approach. Don't do this. But it's always balanced by do this, a proper pursuit. So here the wife is that proper pursuit. If he pursues her emotionally, she will satisfy him. The wayward <clears throat> woman will not do so. Okay, questions on this or thoughts? Yeah. So Barry about this is that this is written by Solomon. Mm-hmm. And... The, the paragraph
1: seems to be referring to a single wife. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you kind of reconcile yeah. the fact
0: that he certainly did not fall into that category? He learned his lesson. Right. Well, he, he didn't follow a lot of the, the advice. When you get to the, the last chapter where Lemuel's mother is berating him, if you remember chapter 31, and saying, it is not for kings to give themselves to wine or to women in excess. And uh, it seems that he probably does both, at least one. So, um, you know, ha- the, the question that goes along with that is, how can the Song of Solomon be written by Solomon if he has so many wives or women? So, I don't know, the, the best answer I can give is, uh, in his youth, there probably was uh, a true love, but it very quickly got off the right path uh, because he married for political reasons, for other reasons, and this was a slow descent away from the Lord. So, yeah, you're right to point that out. It is ironic, but it's true. If, if he followed his own advice, it would have kept him from a lot of problems and, and things that eventually caught up with him, such as idolatry and other things. So. Do you
1: think this was written in his youth, or are these a collection of writings throughout his life?
0: Yeah, it's hard to say. what The Jewish rabbis, and I don't always think they're on the right track, but sometimes they are, they, they said that Solomon wrote Song of Solomon when he was young, Proverbs when he was in middle age, and Ecclesiastes when he was an old man. That's possibly the case. Uh, others have suggested, well, if he apostatized later in life, which you might pick up that suggestion from 1 Kings, then could he have written Ecclesiastes? I don't know that he completely apostatized from the faith, but he did seem to spiritually deteriorate. So I don't know. Uh, they surmised that he had sort of a, a, a repentant heart at the end, and that's what led to Ecclesiastes. I don't know; it's, it's hard to say. But
1: so, I mean, it is kind of interesting because he's pointing out what will cause him to spiritually deteriorate this wayward
0: woman, right? Which we knew from his own life that that's exactly what happened to him, right? Because of all the women, right? Mm-hmm. But they would view it a little bit differently, and, and I know this doesn't necessarily justify it, but he's warning specifically against pursuing another man's wife, which was what David did. Uh, you know, and, and there's this remarkable statement in in Samuel where God says, you know, anything that you could have wanted, I would have given to you. I even gave you Saul's wives, plural. You know, we, is this condoning polygamy? Well, no, but. There's a sense in which David was he had access to what he would have desired, but he went after what was off limits to him, i.e. Bathsheba, because she was Uriah's wife. So even though Solomon had multiple wives, uh, it wasn't viewed as pernicious as long as he was the sole husband of these multiple wives rather than pursuing someone else's wife, which is probably what's in view here. It's hard. It's still hard to justify it to the modern mindset because there's so many wives involved. But that's how they would have probably viewed the situation. So, good point. Any other thoughts on this?
1: Just one brief question. Saga. Can that be used? Is that used in negative, or can it be used in negative and positive?
0: Um. It's certainly used in negative uh, for for going astray. It's rare that it's used in positive, but here it seems to be positive in the sense that uh, he's he's to be emotionally rapturous with the wife. So you're talking about the word shaga, yeah. So it's it's generally associated with drunken intoxication. When I think of this word, I think of the guy who's pulled over for driving under the influence, told to walk the line, and he kind of staggers back and forth. That's kind of the word picture that I get with this word. So usually it's negative. It's usually a word for sin, because sin in the Bible means to miss the mark, to to err astray. And so that's kind of the idea here. But he's using this word here as uh, sort of a play on words to say, if you're going to focus all your energies and attentions on something, let it be this, the wife, rather than on something you can't have, which is the off-limits woman that you might be tempted to pursue. Uh, So I don't know if that answers your question. Generally, it's negative, so it's rare for it to be a positive, but here he seems to be making a play on words, and that's why he does that.
1: Um, In the Ten Commandments, there's thou shalt not commit adultery. Mm -hmm. Now, is that referring to all sexual sin or just as... You were saying uh, the man pursuing another
0: man's wife. Um, It's principally pursuing another man's wife, principally. Uh, It still was viewed negatively, of course, uh, if a man seduced a virgin. But in that context, he could marry her, and the penalty wasn't as severe as adultery, which was pursuing a married woman. And that seems to be primarily what the purview of that idea was. Um, So, yeah. You know, there's different words used. That word for adultery principally means that. In Leviticus, uh, the idiom is used to uncover the nakedness, which has a sexual connotation but isn't quite the same thing as adultery. And that often refers to illicit incest or sexual sins of that nature. But adultery is usually... Uh, between married spouses, so does that make sense? Yes, yep. especially sure. in
1: view of what we were talking about. Yeah, yep.
0: All right, good, good idea. Thoughts here? Okay, uh, let me just mention a few things here, and I want to uh, suggest that the the way to read verses fifteen through twenty uh, might be a little bit different from how we might initially think to read those verses. All right, at the bottom of 99, I say that this chapter has the second of four warnings against the outside woman and is the only admonition to give a positive description of marital fidelity as the antidote. Uh, So this uh, outside woman, we've talked about her already, is probably a married Israelite woman. Uh, If you go to page 100, uh, she's a, a contrastive figure to Lady Wisdom. And I've already developed this a little bit, but as you read through Proverbs, uh, what becomes very clear is there are two paths, right? We have talked about the two paths. And on the one path is uh, the wayward woman, and she is the embodiment of Lady Folly. When we get to chapter 9, we'll see Lady Folly in particular view. She sits and she calls out to the young men to come in and eat her banquet. Uh, she is embodied in the wayward woman who leads to death. And we'll see how that's the case a little bit later in the notes. On the other hand, you have lady wisdom. She's embodied in the wife of the young man, but we don't see her fully developed until chapter 31, where we have that alphabetic acrostic of what the ideal wife is supposed to be like. But we are introduced briefly to her here. And so she's the embodiment of lady wisdom and here though, her, her focus is not so much on wisdom as the satisfaction that she brings primarily in sexual terminology to the young man as opposed to pursuing the outside woman. Uh, So notice what Bleckensop here says in this quote uh, about the two women. Both seek to influence their audience, the younger male population, married or unmarried, principally but of course not exclusively by seductive speech. Okay, so both are... Uh, addressing the young man through speech, and that's primarily how they draw him in. Uh, They're out in public places. Uh, The one is a faithful wife, and the other one is described as an adulteress or a prostitute. Both can be grasped and embraced. Uh, One is life-enhancing, the other is death-dealing. Okay, so uh, it's interesting that there's a lot of similarity between the two. Water is used in both cases. On the one hand, with the wayward woman, it's stolen water is sweet. This is the phrase used uh, later in chapter 9. Here, it's a refreshing stream of water. And so that's what the young man is to desire. He's to drink water from his own cistern. Uh In the middle paragraph there on page 100, I just want to note something about this. I mentioned this earlier, but uh, the idea of fluid metaphors for love. Van Luyen describes, uh, he says that the seductive attraction of the outside woman is an illicit invitation to transgress prescribed restrictions and limits, which Yahweh as the creator has ingrained in the structures and rhythms of the cosmos. Okay, Luyen Uh, says this, that the opposition of adultery to married love concretely shows that sin and folly cross-created boundaries while the play of eros within marriage illustrates freedom within form. The gist of what he's saying there is this, that uh, within God's design, God has created us to enjoy his creation. Uh, This is why ultimately I think Uh, ascetics or those who deny themselves all the good gifts of creation ultimately are wrongheaded in the sense that God has created things for us to enjoy this is what Ecclesiastes is largely about right that we're to enjoy what God has given us judiciously while remembering he will bring us into judgment so the point is not that we're to to uh prevent ourselves from enjoying love and even sexual intimacy in this context, but we are to do so within the design that God has created for him. And so when those waters are channeled in the appropriate boundaries, that's where uh, true satisfaction comes. Uh, So uh, that seems to be the point here between uh, those two metaphors of water. Okay, page 101, just one other thing I want to mention. Um, this is an interpretive question and I'll just say this, that when I initially read this or through many years of reading Proverbs, uh, I read and understood this a certain way. For instance, when it says in verse 15 to drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well, I understood that to be the wife. She's, she's the cistern. She's the well, but then in verse 16, there's a shift here to a plural form of that. In verse 16, I'm reading from uh, the older NIV. It says, should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? The question is, is that talking about the young man's potential sexual profligacy, or is it still talking about the woman? You see what I'm saying? In other words, verse 15 is clearly a a water metaphor to describe the sexual potency of the woman, What is verse 16 describing? In other words, is it saying, enjoy your wife? Why should your springs flow in the streets? Now, is this a a reference to the male's illicit sexual activity in the streets? Or is this still describing the woman? Do you see what I'm saying? So in other words... Uh, The way I often read this was that 15 was about the wife, but 16 was about the man who not being satisfied with his wife was seeking sexual satisfaction and intimacy uh, in other places, in the streets and in the public squares. However, as I've studied this more, I've come to the conclusion that I don't think that that's really what he's saying in verse 16. I think the the metaphors are consistent because, uh, for instance... Uh, When we come to 17 and 18, it's clearly a reference back to the wife. Otherwise, he's switching water metaphors from the woman to the man. You see what I'm saying? So in other words, I would take 16 to also be a reference to the woman. If that's the case, what does this mean? I think what it means is if the husband is not completely satisfied with the wife, she might be uh, tempted or seeking some sort of sexual satisfaction outside the home as well. Uh, so this is a somewhat controversial uh, interpretation in some se- I mean, it's not super controversial, but it's uh, there are not as many necessarily that are completely convinced of that this is the case. But I think it is based on the consistency of the imagery. OK, so uh, I have a quote here again from Louis and. Uh, He says, verse 17 makes clear the water sources in 15 and 16 and 18 do not refer to male fluids or to progeny. Some have argued that the shift from singular water sources to plural indicates a shift in subject. Instead, the plural serves to intensify the notion of abundance found in the wife. Okay, so it seems verse 18 makes explicit the water images all refer to the wife. A wife is for her husband alone. So if that's the case, what the father is, I think, saying here, and and Chisholm says this, I have a quote there at the bottom of the page you can read, that the wife has enough sexual potency to satisfy many, but she's yours alone. So you are to be ravished with her alone, and she is to be your sole source of enjoyment. In other words, uh, she's a fountain of vitality that is exclusively for the young man. Therefore, he's not to seek sexual stimulation outside of that fountain. In other words, he's given a superabundance of sexual vitality and satisfaction within the context of his own marriage. Why would he seek that elsewhere? I think that's the point that's being made. So I would take verse 16 to also refer to the wife that she is... uh, for him alone so he is to be satisfied with her so that she herself uh, is his fountain uh, that satisfies him at all times all right thoughts about that i don't know if you've already come to that conclusion in your own study but for many years i sort of implicitly just saw a switch there between the wife and the male but i think the husband i think Uh, To be consistent, the water metaphor seems to uh, be used of the wife. All right, thoughts about that?
1: I think you're right.
0: Do you? Yep, I sure do. Okay, simple
1: fact: if the guy, let's say the guy is just out, never comes home, and runs to the bar all the time or whatever they had back then, yeah, yeah. she's going to go and look for companionship somewhere. Right, it's going to be out on the streets too. Right. So, yeah, makes very good sense.
0: Makes sense. Okay. Alright. Well, I feel better. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I, agree. <laughs> I I taught this I taught this class uh, two years ago and probably half agreed with me and half disagreed. So anyway, it is what it is. I'm, stop- but.
1: I'm not saying I'm right though. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we could both be
0: wrong, right? We can yeah, there is that. That's okay. All right. Well let's go let's continue here. Verse uh, page one oh two. Uh, in, in chapter six, we have what seems to be a brief excursus or break from the speeches. Uh, although it begins in a similar way, my son, uh, what it lacks is this uh, call to attention or call to remember language. Uh, what scholars have noticed here is it seems uh, almost to inter-trude, in, intrude on this theme of the outside woman, because if we were to stop at 6.1 and immediately go down to 6.20, we would once again be taken up with uh, this idea of not being enticed by the wayward woman. And then chapter 7, the same. So why is this, why is chapter 6 inserted here in the middle of these speeches about the outside woman and what is it trying to say? It seems to be suggesting that The young man needs to be warned against not simply the wayward wife, the outside woman, but also a whole cadre of less than desirable figures who might be enticing him to go astray. In other words, remember the first speech was, if sinners entice you, don't consent, don't follow them. This gang violent group that wanted to bring him in with the lure of easy money. This seems to be what he reverts to here in chapter six. Those who promise easy money or a quick buck, these are the sorts of people that he might be uh, enticed to follow. Not, Not only are wayward women desirable, but his own peer group that offers him a quick buck that he might make, easy money. Alright, right, so let's read these verses and then we'll discuss it beginning in verse one. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you've shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, you have been trapped by what you said and snared by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, free yourself since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands. Go to the point of exhaustion and give your neighbor no rest. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Uh, That's technically the same word hand in both phrases there, the hand of the hunter and the hand of the fowler. Uh, So this I've categorized as the folly of the loan shark. You're not to be putting up security for a neighbor. The next section is the folly of the sluggard. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Okay, then the folly of the mischief maker, a troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eye, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart. He always stirs up conflict. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will be suddenly destroyed without remedy. And then finally, the folly of the agitator. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Okay, so this, these are uh, a series of warnings against follies brought on by outside people that might be desirable to the young man. All right, so let's just talk about this a little bit. Is there any commonality here in these various villainous types figures that the young man might be enticed to follow? Do you see any threads here that would tie together these various individuals? Any thoughts?
1: only thing i could think of is don't be taken in by your peers
0: okay don't be taken in by your peers uh these are peers that uh aren't really after the the welfare of the young man right so they're ones that might be desirable but they're really enticing him uh toward the wrong path okay any other thoughts
1: i have a question mm-hmm. on that first section about the loan shark yeah um, i I get the part about don't be putting up security for the neighbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then after you have, he says, go and free yourself and then give your neighbor no rest. Then it says, allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids.
0: Yeah.
1: How, What is exactly is he supposed to be doing there? He's supposed to be after the neighbor to pay up? Or he's supposed to be paying up for the neighbor to get him off his back?
0: Yeah, he's he's essentially co-signed for a loan yeah. that he needs to do whatever he can to get out of. So uh, verse 1, if he's put up security for his neighbor. In other words, he's been uh, the co-signer here who's uh, the one that's responsible now for this loan. He's to go to his neighbor and seek to get out of this agreement in any way possible. So it's sort of an exaggerated, almost comical Uh, exhortation here that he's to do whatever it takes to get out of this bad deal because it's going to financially bring him down
1: even even if he's got to be paying it off on his own is that correct
0: i would say so Uh, you know he the idea is he's pledged something for the neighbor and so he's to do whatever it takes to get out of this because now he's He's fallen into the hand of the neighbor. He's come under the power of the neighbor. Uh, you know, as as the saying, the, the borrower, borrower is slave to the lender. So this idea that he's financially jeopardized his, himself through this uh, bad loan idea. Okay, good good thought. Well, notice some things that might stand out as we go through this. One is, Uh, words that are repeated so for instance notice how hand in verse 3 you've fallen into your neighbor's hand and then verse 5 you're like a gazelle uh, that's fallen into the hand of the hunter Uh, in biblical terminology particularly in the Old Testament what does the hand represent any ideas when when we say that you've fallen into the hands of so and so what does that mean
1: they got you
0: Okay, Right, so the hand really symbolized the power or the vitality of someone. Uh, The Holocaust memorial in Israel, in Jerusalem, is called Yad Vashem, which in Hebrew means the hand and the name. So the idea is someone's vitality, their, their life is symbolized through the hand and their legacy through the name. So this Holocaust memorial was built to to endure as a testament to their life and their legacy, essentially. So whenever you see hand in the Bible, it's not just the physical hand so much as the power uh, that someone has. So he's fallen into the hand. And then notice verse four. uh, He's not to allow sleep to his eyes. What's interesting about this is sleep then becomes a key theme in the next section. If you look at verse 10 and, and 9, how, when will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Uh, so the idea there is sleep. Uh, you're not to give sleep because you've fallen into this bad loan. Instead, you're to get out of it in whatever way possible. Uh, there's another catchword. Uh, which is the word um in the next section uh the idea of a villain uh no in verse 11 uh this idea of a thief or a uh the word is really a drifter is then repeated in verse 12 as the villain so there there are several catchwords here that uh seem to suggest uh the connection between these. Notice then also verse 13, this villain is doing something. He's signaling with his body parts, the eye, feet, fingers, heart, mouth in verse 12. And then notice the last section, how this evil that the Lord hates involved the eyes, tongue, hands, heart, feet, okay, and the mouth and pouring out lies. Okay, so there are connections here that seem to suggest these are not just random uh, descriptions, but they really are meant to be taken together, and they kind of form a coherent thread. These are the types of people that might draw him in. Those that uh, promise a quick gain or promise some sort of uh, power or notoriety, uh, he's to avoid them because they will take him down the wrong path. Okay, any other thoughts or observations about it before I give you some some observations or thoughts? All right, well, you notice on the bottom page 102 there, uh, just some, some thoughts about the translations here. Uh, I think what this means in verse one, if you've put up security for your neighbor, I say in the second sentence there, the notion includes backing someone else financially in a venture for which the son... Becomes liable. So he's co-signed on a loan. We might translate this verse, my son, if you have co-signed a loan for a companion or have shaken hands with a stranger. Okay. So he's become liable now for his friend. And this is what he's to avoid. Uh, the next, uh, verse that I want to talk about verse three, uh, notice what he's to do. He's to free himself And he's to go, as the NIV says, to the point of exhaustion. Uh, I have an alternate translation for this verse, which I render this way. Do this then, my son, deliver yourself, for you have entered into the hand or the snare of your companion. Go, cover ground, and pester your companion. The idea is he's to be bugging his companion, his neighbor, his friend, until his friend finally gives up and says, fine, I'll let you out of this bad loan. Uh, So on page 103, in the middle paragraph there, on the bottom half of the page, uh, I say this, that the main point of the verse is that the young man is to be relentlessly diligent in his pursuit to absolve himself from the loan. Our modern idiom of pounding the pavement expresses this notion uh, this word here is, uh, when I say he's to cover ground, uh, the NIV renders this as to the point of exhaustion. The the word really means to trample underfoot, to muddy himself in his pursuit of uh, freedom from this loan. And I have a quote here, of all places, uh, from Pride and Prejudice, because it brings to mind, if you've read the book or seen the movie, Elizabeth Bennett's Walking miles to get to the residence of the Bingsleys and they are very snobbish toward her. I have a quote here about that. Uh, They say she has nothing in short to recommend her but being an excellent walker. I shall never forget her appearance this morning. She really looked almost wild. The friend, the sister says she did indeed, Louisa. I can hardly, could hardly keep my countenance very nonsensical to come at all. Why must she be scampering about the country because her sister had a cold, her hair so untidy, so blousy. Yes, and her petticoat. I hope you saw her petticoat six inches deep in mud. I am absolutely certain. And the gown which had been let down to hide it, not doing its office. So this is the idea here. He's to be covering ground, muddying himself in pursuit of uh, redemption or freedom from this loan. He's to do whatever it takes. All right, page 104. Uh, he's to free himself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter i've already mentioned this but hand is the power of someone or control so he's to be uh, freeing himself from that Uh, verse six mentions going to the ant Uh, i don't know if you've ever observed ants at a picnic or on the sidewalk as they're gathering food you know scientifically it's pretty fascinating how much weight they can carry in distribution to their own weight. They're actually pretty powerful creatures. And so the ant here is used as an example. And I have some notes here about this. This is likely the harvester ant, which is native to Canaan. And it was also described in a 14th century proverb. Uh, so if you think of the 14th century, this is during the time of the judges. This has been discovered in an inscription and the proverb reads this, if ants are smitten, they do not receive the smiting passively, but they bite the hand of the man who smites them. The idea is they're spunky and vivacious. Uh, and so they're to be, uh, seen as an example here. However, uh, it's, they're taken as an example of industry and this is another, uh, in proverbs 30 verse 25 agur a later sage in the book he says this the answer of people not strong yet they provide their food in the summer so the idea is they don't have a taskmaster; they just naturally go and uh, do this so they're to be an example to the young man now let me just talk a moment about this i don't know if i have this in the notes later perhaps but um when the sage uses an animal as an example to the young man, uh, what is the point of, of using an animal as an example of wisdom? One thing that I've noticed and others have noticed about wisdom literature is whenever animals are used as examples, they're never domesticated animals. They're always wild animals. Think of the book of Job, right? When the Lord comes down and in his speeches to Job, he doesn't say consider the goat, right? Unless it's a wild goat. He doesn't say consider the cow or consider, you know, whatever the, the sheep. He, he says consider these wild animals. So why would the wild animal vis-a-vis the domestic animal an example of wisdom. Have you ever thought about that stuff that I think about? But um, why why would a wild animal be a better paradigm for wisdom? They're part of creation. Okay, they're part of creation. So they they, they exist. You know, as God tells Job, outside of the range of, of human dominion. And in that sense, they have things to teach us about how to live successfully within the God-designed cosmos that he's given us, right? In other words, they, they can do this without us having to teach them how to do it. They just naturally thrive and exist within the context of God's creation. And so in that sense, they seem to offer a lesson to us about how to live not cross grain, but in the grain of God's design and intent for the cosmos. Any other thoughts along these lines? Yeah, I think that's that's what's going on. If you look at a cow in the field, there's not a whole lot to gain from you know just chewing the cud and, and wandering around it the field. Tastes good, don't right, <laughs> it sure does. But if you look at a wild animal, there's something. Uh, mysterious and captivating about a wild animal, how it survives, how it cares for its young, how it thrives in the wilderness. Think of, uh, if you've ever watched the uh, the documentary series Planet Earth, right? If you've ever seen this BBC production, there are some amazing uh, creatures in the universe, in creation, that do amazing things. And so the point seems to be uh, if they can thrive in this sort of an environment, think of like uh, one episode deals with the the plants and animals that live in the Atacama Desert in South America where there's essentially no precipitation through the year other than a, a dew that comes. And yet there are plants and animals that live there. So how do they do that? Well, they have some sort of wisdom that they've applied to their life. So this is what the young man is to do, to look at animals that are beyond the realm of our dominion and see what lessons we can learn from them. And... uh as someone has said, you know, if, if we've made so many spectacular breakthroughs in science, think about how much we don't know, even about the animal kingdom. That's still there to be, you know, can. If you can teach a gorilla to do sign language, uh, you know, there's there's so much even there to understand how animals work that I think it can teach us certain things about uh, living wisely in God's creation. All right, our time is almost up, so let me just uh, make a few more comments here. Uh, if you go to page one Oh five, uh, just want to talk about these, uh, verbs here at the bottom of the page 612 through 14, uh, the verbs depicting the scoundrel are active participles. You'll notice he talks about, uh, he goes about, he winks, he signals. These suggest ongoing activity. Uh, So this is something which he does as a characteristic. Uh, As I noted at the bottom there, the evildoers are portrayed as characteristically acting in such a way as this persistent perversion of the prescribed moral order. In a habitual manner, such behavior defines their way of life. So they use their body parts to perpetrate evil. Uh, They do this in order to... uh, Contravene God's intent for creation. All right, I have a lot of other uh, exegetical thoughts there, but I'm going to kind of forego that and go to page 107 and uh, just make a few comments as we conclude here. All right, I noticed, I noted earlier that 6, 1 to 19 uh, is sort of an interlude in these main thoughts about marital fidelity. And I mm-hmm. note here, Murphy labels this as interruptive in the sense that uh, it, it is a sidebar from this idea of marital fidelity in chapter 5 and then later in 6 and in 7. However, there are a number of literary connections within the passage that suggest a heightening of themes. While sexual fidelity is the key theme of chapter 5 and later chapter 6, the allure of easy money seems to be the central concern here. And you notice I, I give you some examples here of catchphrases. So in six 1 to five, the idea of go and snooze is repeated. In six six to eleven, go and snooze. In six six to eleven, the begging man is connected to the wicked man. In six twelve to fifteen, and then spreading controversies is connected to the later villain who spreads controversies. And they do so by using body parts. You'll notice how the body parts are repeated. Eyes, tongue, mouth, hands, fingers, heart, devising evil, and feet. So the young man is to avoid these people that would use their all of their body to draw in the young man away from the truth and in a path that will lead to his destruction. All right, our time is up, so we'll pause there for tonight and, and resume this next time. Uh, so look forward to our, our next time together. Thanks for your good attention tonight.